Not sure if all of you noticed, we'd really love to make it a practice to obey 1 Peter 5:14. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Anyone into that? Uh, hi, my name is Trev. I'm the pastor here at Herbert Grace Church, and I'm super glad that you've joined us uh, this morning. And uh, let me just pray, uh, as Josh has read Scripture, let me pray that this Scripture uh, becomes real to us through, through the preached word this morning. Jesus, again, we, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. We don't merely thank you for salvation, but all of the blessings on top of salvation. The ways in which you have blessed us as a church and you've been generous to us. And your evidence of your generosity is everywhere, Jesus. And now, Jesus, would you be generous enough to give us your Holy Spirit that would empower me to speak well about an issue that means a lot to you? And would you empower those who are listening to hear it well? Jesus, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to hear from your word. And we want to glorify you in everything that we do, Jesus. So would you help us this morning? In your name I pray. Amen. Well, we're in a series uh, on First Peter called Tested. And this series uh, is really, in, in, in a lot of ways, it's again been autobiographical. It seems like this is what Jesus is choosing to do uh, through our series. Uh, but as we have gone through, it's only been 11 weeks. For some of you, it's been like, really? It's felt like a long, long time that we've been in the book of First Peter. And for myself, it's felt longer than 11 weeks, uh, although we had a couple of spaces in there. Uh, because uh, we faced some severe testing during this time. I don't think it's over yet. I don't think once we're done our series, we won't be tested anymore. I just believe that Jesus has chosen this time to test us so that we can understand what we're going through a lot better. And I do feel uh, kind of collectively that what Jesus has done, he's been gracious enough to uh, equip us to suffer much better than I think when we started. And so I'm grateful for that, although I know that the, the suffering's not over and there's still many people in pain, uh, many frustrations yet to go through, just to keep your spirits up. Um, and it seems odd to, to, in the Christmas season, be talking about these sorts of things, but I actually think uh, it's helpful because it, it almost feels unusual to talk about suffering during the Christmas season, and so we pay attention a little bit more. But to get you quickly up to speed... Uh, in our series, it's the last time you'll see our banner up like this, but it kind of describes what's been uh, going through our series, is that First uh, Peter is a, a letter written by a very tested man who's sat with Jesus, who's walked with Jesus, who's betrayed Jesus, who's failed Jesus, and yet Jesus specifically chose him as a faulted tested person to send the church, the New Testament church, into a new phase of life. And it gives us all hope that if someone who's severely tested like this can be the foundation of a church, then surely you and I can be helpful to Jesus, even though we are sinful people who need his help so badly. And as we've gone through the series, it's, it's all about uh, facing kind of the, the persecution uh, but facing it well and understanding its use, that, that persecution and testing doesn't come as a result of Jesus' ignorance of our lives, but actually His presence in our lives. 
that's such a hard concept for us to get beyond because we're probably products of our culture and our culture has done, I think, a very poor job of teaching us how to suffer well. Our culture generally says suffering is for those people who have done bad things. And that's why so many times when we face testing, our first response is, what did I do and what can I do to fix it? Many people say, I don't want to suffer, so maybe if I just please God more, He'll stop making me suffer. Now, the problem with that is that Jesus Himself never sinned. We believe that here at Urban Grace. And yet He suffered among the most painful deaths that a human being can ever suffer. He faced some of the most severe testing. In fact, as I'm studying this, I keep going back to the the 30 years that Jesus spends in relative oblivion, and then right before His public ministry, right before He performs His miracles, He is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert for 40 days of severe testing. The Bible says, a place where wild beasts were. Some of you, that sounds like really great. Uh, remember, this is like a desert, no weapons, just the Word of God, and basically no food. He is led by God into the desert so that He can be tested, so that He can help us with our sufferings. And so this is proof that that testing is not the absence, it's not proof of the absence of God, it's actually proof of the presence of God. And we need to continually hear that and have that washed through our head. And that's very much where the, the series ends. Now, some of you are a little surprised as you read, why does the series on testing end by talking about eldership? Well, let me kind of introduce and, and help you understand why this particular passage is where it is in this part of Scripture. As the, script, as the letter kind of goes on, there, it seems like the testing is more and more severe. And by the time we reach chapter 4, basically Peter says, don't be surprised. This is coming. You would do well to get ready for this. And then he leaves off by saying, in fact, what, what the design of God in all of this is that he tests his people because actually judgment day for Christians starts the moment they become a Christian. And many times, just a bit before that, some of you, that's what leads you to Jesus. As you face severe times of testing, I believe those are given to you by God to point you to Jesus. And then as you enter into the Christian life, you actually begin to face greater sufferings. Because I think the point is, for Jesus, He says, I actually have the end goal in mind. I have the end goal of making you perfect people. I have the end goal of releasing you from the grip of sin. I have the end goal of having you be perfect worshipers of Me in heaven. That's what heaven essentially is. It's the freedom and the ability to worship Jesus without having all of the baggage of sin that comes along. Anyone else looking forward to that? I know I am. I cannot wait. This is not a fatalistic statement by any stretch of the imagination, but I can't wait until the shackles of my sin are completely gone. I can't wait for it. Some days I say, Jesus, you can speed this process up if you like. Except I look at my little girls and I say, I need to be with them right now. I understand God's plan in that. But there are some days when I say, Jesus, I can't wait for the day when I will be free from the temptation of choosing me or you. But the problem with this is that when Jesus hears our prayer of Jesus, make me more like 
you, what he does then is he begins to purify us by stripping away all the things that we don't need and all the things that do hinder us. And the scripture actually says he begins with the people of God. That's why, ironically, we can look around and see, why are people that are following God seem to have better lives? And why are those who are truly obedient to God seem to have worse lives? Because the judgment day has already started for those who are following Jesus. That's why. Now, if that's true, which it is, then of God's people, who do you think he calls to face the most severe suffering first? The leaders. Any leadership guru will tell you this, that leaders essentially all they do for the most part is go first. And so this is why Peter ends. He says, if judgment of God's people begin, or if the, if the judgment of God begins with God's people, then the judgment of God's people begins with her leaders. The leaders of the church. It's a good word for us, but I, I think it's a tough word. And so this morning, I think we're going to take a look at this thing called eldership. We're going to pull apart some things. We're, we're not that familiar with this topic, I don't think. Uh, not all of us have a uh, deep study of this. So we have to talk kind of uh, through this before we can even move into kind of the motivations for eldership or leadership. So the leaders, let, let me just say it this way, beginning kind of in verse 5, it says, So I exhort the elders among you. There would have been a general understanding of what an elder was. An elder was a leader, a shepherd of God's church. They were given the divine mandate to oversee. The Bible actually uses interchangeably the word shepherd, the word bishop, and the word overseer. The word shepherd is often translated pastor, which is where we get our modern ideas of pastor. Now we use the word pastor almost very generically for anyone who's paid and works for a church. I think that's actually a, a, a poor representation of the word pastor because there are some people that work in churches that are not pastors, and you've met some of them. Some of you are at this church because you've met some of them. But the Bible uses this word interchangeably, elder, pastor, bishop, overseer. People that govern the church. And there's different aspects and different reasons. Uh, no, I'm not suggesting that you begin to call me Bishop Rye Savvy. I don't think that's that helpful. But actually, uh, it's, it's more correct than you think. It's just that our understanding of Bishop Rye Savvy is I tell you what to do and you do it, right? That's generally our perception of what a bishop is. But a bishop is just someone who's got uh, care over probably a lot of pastors. That's generally where it gets used. This is why the church still considers this a very good term, a bishop over particular areas. It's actually a correct term. It's just that as most things, it's not the term that's the problem. It's the abuse of the person in holding the position that's really the problem. This is most of our uh, problems in kind of the church culture is not that we use the wrong words and we need to change the words. It's just that we need to recover the true meaning of, of these words. And so the Bible says, so I exhort the elders among you. Well, well, who are the elders? They ultimately are the people in charge of shepherding a flock. Pretend for a second you're a flock. That's what the Bible would describe you as. This is because probably a good metaphor that the Bible uses consistently is this idea of shepherd and flock. Jesus uses this metaphor often. In fact, he describes himself as a, as a great shepherd, the chief shepherd. 
you could translate that the senior pastor. That's actually a good translation of that, uh, of that phrase. Jesus is the senior pastor. We're little P pastors. We're little E elders. Jesus is the chief elder. We're little E elders. And elders are the people that are given the, the charge, the mandate to, to govern and oversee. Now again, our issue probably, we may have issues with this idea of governance. But, but if you can just hear kind of the language, uh, a, a fellow elder, a shepherd, exercising oversight, an example. The idea here is care. This isn't like, we're going to tell you what to do. We're just going to tell you the direction the church is going. We're going to tell you how much to give and what we're spending our money for. We're going to care for you. We've taken our sweet time with rolling out membership because it, it's a complicated process. But when we do, one of the things we will do is we will covenant as elders with you as members. We promise we will care for you to the best of our ability. We will shepherd you to the best of our ability. Again, this idea of shepherd is confusing. Any sheep farmers in the house? Okay, so you're confused by this image of shepherd, right? I've never raised sheep myself, but I am told that this is actually a pretty good metaphor because sheep are dumb. <laughs> Anyone who's worked with sheep, they're, they're gentle animals, but in some ways they can be very, very helpless. They can, they are sometimes very ignorant of danger. In fact, they're so dumb sometimes they run straight toward danger thinking they're escaping from it. Their best defense is to turn their back on danger, which sounds like a lot of Christians actually. I'll just pretend it's not here and maybe it'll go away. Right? Now this is not to say you're dumb, of course, please. You know, if you need to edit the podcast, go ahead. This is to describe, in some ways, the great need for care. And many of you feel that, and many of you, if you don't think that's true, think of all your experiences with church. Most of the time, people reject church, not because the truth is too hard to hear, but because they cannot receive the care that they need, and they know it. That's the reason why many people reject. Many of you reject church because you are fighting against the, the, the way someone has cared for you and it's been brutal. And for that, I collectively apologize on behalf of all shepherds. We're sorry. It's why we planted a church. We felt we needed better shepherds. We didn't feel that sheep were just too stupid. We said, we need better shepherds. And it's part of our mission to build and develop a high standard for shepherds. So that it is crystal clear, whether you agree with us or not, of what our standard for a shepherd is and why we do it. I am not that bothered if you disagree with me. I actually welcome you. I think this is still a great place for you, even if you don't agree with the way we govern our church. But I will say, I want you to at least know what we think. Well, I am sick and tired of churches not explaining well what we're going to try and do for you. And we need to get better at it. Those are what the elders is. Our, sorry, grammar. I hung out with an English major this week. 
Elders are basically, you say, I talk about this qualified, this standard. What I'm, what I'm talking about is this idea of people who we trust to take care. And First Timothy, I think, has very helpful words about it. Uh, you don't even have to turn there. I'm going to read from First Timothy chapter 3, which talks about the qualifications for elders and deacons. Deacons would be uh, kind of more on, sometimes more on the ground, kind of less responsibility with same qualifications, amazingly enough. Just because the job has less responsibility does not mean the job uh, holders are less qualified. It's an amazing thing. It also brings up a point that we should say about Urban Grace is that your, the quality of your character matters to us a great deal. And 10 times out of 10, okay, for the math guys, it's 100%. 10 times out of 10, we will choose quality of character over gifting. 10 times out of 10. It is great if you have gifts. We welcome that. We want that. We're looking for gifts. But we will never, you have my word on this, we will never sacrifice character for gifting, ever. You can call me on that too. You could pursue me on that. I don't mind. But you have my word. We will pursue character. This is why most often the people that serve take a long time to get into leadership and to be truthful, don't always have a super great passion for it because they understand the role. They got a clear grasp of it. And Paul says to 1 Timothy in this book, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Yes, this is a role we think is reserved for men. We do. That is our stance on this. Again, we don't mind. If you disagree with that, we want you to know that up front. This is tied heavily into what we learned from 1 Peter chapter 3, which is there is a different but complementary role for husband and wife. In other words, we do believe that men are called to lead in their homes and their wives to follow that leadership. We do. We function this way. And we think the governance of the church actually just is an imitation of that. In other words, this is what we believe about the small, real family. This is what we believe about the big family. It's the same thing. I think we need to bring some congruency here between the two. Now, by the way, we don't do it because it's easy in our culture. Some of you may never come back to this church as a result of that, and I'm actually okay with that. Because I think there's lots of great churches in this city that don't hold that stance. But we do, and I want you to know it. The elders are the people that we feel can take care of their family well. To the point where we also think they can take the greater responsibility of the larger family. Right? That's what Timothy says. If they can't manage their own family, if they can't lead themselves, if they can't lead their wives, if they can't lead their children to the gospel, why would we tell them to lead other people to the gospel? That makes no sense whatsoever. And so these are, these are people that, yes, are tested. We have some minimum requirements. I'm not going to tell you what they are, but we have a time limit on how soon an elder can serve and be installed at Urban Grace. And it's a lot longer than people are comfortable with. Because we want to see how you lead yourself. We want to see how you lead your family. We want to see how you lead a city group. We want to see how you lead. We want to test you. 
And see so you go through tests. What do elders do? Uh, they, they, they shepherd the flock. That's what Peter says. They shepherd the flock. Here's what E.B. Cranfield says about shepherds that would be understood in the Bible. The chief functions of the shepherd as they are depicted in the Bible are to seek out the lost, to gather the scattered, to watch over and defend against wild beasts and robbers, to feed and water and to lead. That's it. It's a lot of work, isn't it? It's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of care. Yes, it is. And so those elders that you deem uh, that, that are in charge, in, in some ways, you should be grateful and thankful to them. They work very hard. I know from the inside out, they care a great deal. They pray a lot. They think about you. They find ways to take care of you. They hate having conflict with you, but they know sometimes it's necessary in order to help you. And we should not take that lightly. We should be thankful. We should be grateful. Actually, Timothy says, elders who preach and teach for a living deserve double honor. What he was trying to say is, this is an honorable position. This isn't a position that should just go to someone who just because. And that comes as Peter talks. It's a difficult job. Alexander Strzok wrote a book. Uh, it's difficult to remember, but it's about biblical eldership. It's called Biblical Eldership. Okay? If you need to know more uh, about kind of what this means, Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strzok, somebody in their field notes, write that down if you're interested. It's a great book, great resource. Uh, excellent. He says this, The mandate for elders to shepherd the flock of God is vitally important to the local church. The Bible teaches that people are like sheep, and sheep cannot be left unattended. Their well-being depends on a great deal of care and attention. As God's sheep... Christian people need to be fed God's Word and be protected from wolves in sheep's clothing. They need continuous encouragement, comfort, guidance, prayer, and correction. Thus, the elder's life is one of devoted work for the welfare of the, cl- of the flock. It's a life. It's a lifestyle. And sometimes this is a volunteer lifestyle. They are volunteering, putting their lives on the line, not just to care for themselves and their own spiritual well-being, not just for their wives' spiritual well-being, not just for their family's spiritual well-being, but all of us. It's a high calling. It's important calling. But let's talk about what Peter specifically chooses to get into. And so we'll, we'll move on to this. The, Peter says something very interesting in that he, he first of all says he's a fellow elder. He's participated in the, the sufferings of Jesus. He's watched it. And, and if we know Peter's life, we know that he has not passed very well. Only by the grace of God is he where he is. He's not talking as someone who has not had the shepherd. And then Jesus gives him, the, the scholars would say, the keys to the kingdom, the keys of the church, and basically hands over the keys and says, Peter, you're going to take it to the next level. And so this is what he says about elders. And these are, in particular, these are uh, warnings because I think these are things that elders in particular are susceptible to. Because some of you think that people become elders because they want control, they're greedy, or they want influence. And actually that's exactly what Peter speaks against. 
Here's why you should never be a shepherd. Number one, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly. This leads to desire. I think this, this makes sense. The, really, the, the first thing that should come about for uh, eldership should always be desire. Should want to do this. You should want to do this. Some people are like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to take anyone who actually desires to be in leadership. I'd say that's, that's a bad leader. It's a bad leader. Someone who doesn't want to be in leadership. Why, why would you lead? I'll, I'll give you an example of that. What if, uh, if someone says to me that they're in church leadership because somebody's got to do it? It's not a very good reason, is it? If you asked me, I I looked at you and you had a relationship and I said, you know, you seem like a really happy couple, okay? Uh, Why do you love him and why do you love her? And they both responded, well, because somebody has to love them. (laughs) How would you feel about that relationship? You'd be like, oh, poor girl. (laughs) Poor girl. They're just treated like projects. And yet our churches are filled with leaders. Well, someone has to do it. I don't want to. But somebody's got to take the lead. That's terrible. That's terrible. Sometimes churches are better off not existing than having leaders like this. I, for one, don't love going to a church where people just do it because they have to or they should. So I'm, we're praying. We even prayed before the service. Jesus would, at Urban Grace, you begin to build in the desire of some men. I want to do this one day. I want to be an elder. This is a noble calling. First Timothy says, if someone desires to be an elder, it's a noble task. We have not done this enough in church. This is a noble task. Friends, you can build a business in this world, and in heaven it won't last. But if you are part of building a church, this will last. I always tell my guys, if you want a real mission, be an elder. If you want to just play at being a human, start a business. I'm serious about that. We know this from the ground up. This is a noble position. And some of you, I'm praying, will desire. Some, some of the rest of you, you need to help them in this desire. You need to help shape this. You need to be a big part of this. Even if you don't desire for eldership, I'm hoping all of you have this desire that we have great elders at our church. Even if you don't particularly, personally feel like this is a call you'd like to have. But it's strange how when we call people to some great, noble, difficult thing... People just line up for it. I used to watch a lot of Navy SEALs kind of stuff. This is kind of where, I, like, like the, the Canadian and American military is quite different. American military is pretty open about their military, and so there's lots of stuff on Navy SEALs. So I would watch it training, and I would just say, the, the standard to get in to the Navy SEALs is absolutely ridiculous, and they can't keep up with the applicants. Because they show this level, this standard, this difficulty, and there's something that draws that out for men. That says, I want to do that. And the testing is so brutal that like 70% of applicants never complete the first course. But they want to try. And they can't keep up. I'm hoping we can be an elder factory here. 
where we just keep collecting people who just desire. I want to lead. I want to take care of people. I want to shoulder some more responsibility. What kind of responsibility? Well, we'll get into that. Secondly, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. This, is, this speaks to this issue of greed. Some of us have kind of greedy. They think being a pastor is an easy job. This is where I suggest, plant a church and do it bivocationally, and you will find out very quickly it's not that easy. And it's not the most financially lucrative thing you can do with your life, just so you know. And if you think that it is, I think you're, you're, you're wrong. This is a difficult job that if you're, if you're kind of greedy, in fact, that's one of the qualifications. They can't love money. Because if you love money, you will never, ever, ever be a full-time paid elder. Will never register to you. There's way more lucrative things. And if you think this is a good way to develop leadership principles, if you think this is, looks good on your resume, then I say, do us all a favor and never sign up for being an elder. Do, do something else. And we'll probably even support you in that. But this is not for greedy men. This is not for greedy men. And you will find that all very quickly. Thirdly, not domineering, but exemplary. Again, this speaks to some of the motivations for leadership. Some have this great desire to be in control of other people. Anyone, anyone of you serve a boss like that? You're like, I don't really know why you're at this job. It seems like you just like to tell people what to do. Here's what Peter's device, uh, advice is to those people. Don't sign up. This is not for people who want to be in control. This is for people who serve till their fingers bleed. He says, by the way, your best, uh, your best help doesn't come from your position. So people to listen to you only because you have the position of being an elder. Uh, you probably won't be an elder that long and you won't be that good at it. But if you lead from example... This is exactly what Peter's saying. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So this again is where your character is actually the best leadership characteristic you have. Your example. Paul, when he, when he talks to Timothy, actually says, you don't even need to make a choice. He says, watch your own life. Watch your doctrine. And by doing so, you will what? You will save both yourself and your hearers. He says you don't have to actually make a decision. When you watch your own life and your own character and your own example and you lead yourself well, you won't have to choose between that and helping people to know Jesus. It will come. Because when you can lead yourself, we find ourselves wanting to be around those people. I have some of those people in my life too. People you just want to be around. You say, hmm, I don't know how to do this. Who would, who would know how to do this? And you have people in your mind. This is what Peter says. Your best leadership, eldership characteristic is your example. Not your position. If you think, well, I'd really love influence in urban grace, and maybe if I was an elder, I'd finally have it. I would say that's backwards. 
when you lead yourself well, you may put yourself in a position where you qualify for leadership. And as you enter in, it will be your example that will lead people to Jesus. How do you find out if, if you're eldership material? Again, I've got to go back to First Timothy that get, kind of gives a complete understanding of this. And he says they must be tested. It's actually a qualification. So the qualification is they must not be a recent convert. That's a weird thing to, qual- to put as a quality, isn't it? It must not be a recent convert, not a new believer. Now, why in the world would Paul say to a young church planter, you can't put new believers in the position of elder? Why? Because you can't see over the long haul what kind of quality of character someone is in a couple months. You can't. And there's nothing that can speed that up. You know how we have these great pictures, these, uh, you know, um, nature pictures of time lapses? And you see the sun rise and then set in one day? There's nothing in character development that works like that. There's no process that you just go faster and faster and faster and then it's, it's really quickly this person develops character. No, character is developed over time. Testing happens over time. They must not be a recent convert. And that's okay. And so if you don't get picked or chosen for elder in your first three months of being part of Urban Grace, don't be surprised by this. This will take time. This will take time. We see the reciprocal response to this. If this is such a a big deal, if this is such a great responsibility, then what does Peter say? Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This may seem as a surprise to you that this is said, but not if you read the rest of 1 Peter, which talks all about submission in all kinds of places. Peter says, submit to the government authorities that are in your life. Wives, submit to your husbands. Submission is everywhere in the book of 1 Peter. So he's saying, those of you, and in, in, in some commentators say, it's actually particularly geared toward the young men. Here's what I, why I think this. This is a particular issue for young men, submitting to Older men, submitting to more mature believers. There is nothing that will test your submissiveness like a leader above you who disagrees with you. Let me use an example from my own life. As we started Urban Grace and things began going, one of the things we came across was an opportunity to join networks. And there was this idea going on that we were doing okay as a church. That we did not really, we didn't need to join up with the denomination. We didn't need that kind of support. They were, we weren't going we to feel a lot financially from that support. But something in me said, you need to have someone that you submit to or you guys could easily go off the rails. And so we joined it. We became Mennonite brethren. Here's why. Because we knew we needed to be submissive to somebody. This wasn't the easiest decision we made, by the way. In some ways, it clogged up my schedule. In some ways, it made it more difficult to be free with what we were doing. But in all ways, it made us help to understand that at some point, we all have to submit to somebody. And Jesus has been so kind to give us great people to submit to. He was kind in that. We don't fight them at all. They're wonderful people. 
who we think are doing a great job. And I think the gospel is going forward as, as a result of it. But this is a good, clear warning to all of us. And if you struggle with this, whether you're a young man or not, whether you're everyone, I would say this. Take First Peter very seriously. Submit to those people that are in authority. Not when they tell you to disobey the word. The Bible never says that. But when they move a direction that, man, you, you know better. You, you've been there. You know. But say, wait your turn. Get in line. Become an elder. And, and you'll have more freedom. And more responsibility and pain and struggle and work. If you think we're not doing that good of a job, I would say, plant your own church. <laughs> because this, this, is, this idea that at some point, whether you think you can do it by yourself or not, you will have to submit to somebody. So do it when the going's good. Well, what's one of the number one qualities? Number one qualities that you need as a leader. We'll move into the second one. And these go quicker, by the way. This is top heavy. If you have a lunch, you've got to get to. It's not the primary quality of leaders, but I think it's really, 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 really high on the priority list. I said four reallys there. Is that if, if God is going to judge his people, and if God is going to purify the leaders then I think probably one of the number one qualities that we as leaders need to carefully consider is this whole issue of humility and pride. Most writers, most commentators will say pride is, is the mother of all sins. In other words, pride is the one that gives birth to a lot of other sins. And there is nothing that destroys a church faster than proud leaders. Nothing Sin doesn't destroy a church faster than proud leaders. Messy lives, lack of funds, buildings, too much money, that's never a problem for people. Nothing destroys a church like proud leaders. Nothing. And so that's what Peter says. Clothe yourselves. That really should be a, a new paragraph there in our scripture. Clothe yourselves, all of you, particularly leaders, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Can you hear that as a proud person? God opposes you. He is actively working against you. <laughs> is, is there another place in scripture that should terrify us more than being proud? He actively opposes those who are proud. But what does it say opposite? He actually pursues and gives grace to those who are humble. If you want God's attention, and you want, or if you want God's help, clothe yourself with humility. If you want God's attention, be proud, and He'll find you, and He'll root it out. Why? Because there's, what pride is, is I'm the best, I'm the first, I'm the most important. God is, He's the best. He's the first. He's the most important. And pride is nothing more than telling you're better than God. That's the essence of pride. So why do you think that God opposes the proud? Because there's probably nothing that does more damage to His image than pride. 
There's nothing that, that doesn't reflect God like pride. There's nothing as opposite of God like pride. And so it says, clothe yourselves with humility. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we pursue humility. It's active, not passive, but we'll get into that. We pursue humility by pursuing Jesus in the way of the gospel. This is where it's actually a very good uh, help uh, when it comes to Christmas time. Sometimes we think of Christmas time as, as this really uh, great, wonderful, cozy story. I love, I love Christmas, actually. I don't like how early it seems to be coming every year, but I do like Christmas, to be honest. Uh, to me, it kind of eliminates kind of the specialty of it. So by the time you come to anyone like tired of Christmas by Christmas Day, or at least Christmas Day comes, you're like, oh, man, that was the worst part of Christmas, actually. The best part was the part before. Anyways, that was an aside. That's for free. But the story of Christmas is the story of God's humility to us. I mean, the Christmas carols are about God's humility. So we got a king that's supposed to come in and lead us, and he comes in the form of a crying baby. That song's not true. No crying he makes. He cried. He was born to a human woman. He didn't miraculously appear. He couldn't talk for the first couple years of his life. I mean, if I was God, there's no way I'd do it this way. This doesn't really make sense. Not only was he born to a human woman, but where was he born? He was born in a barn. Like this, we've kind of romanticized the manger. That's actually a place where cows eat. And horses eat. In other words, it's a dirty, saliva-filled bin for food for animals. None of us have this idea that when we get our own apartments, we're going to build a manger to eat out of. Right? It's dirty. This is what our God was born into. Willingly. To a human woman. Willingly, without a midwife. (laughs) Ladies, hear this. Without a midwife, willingly, traveled on the back of a donkey, eight months pregnant. I don't know any woman in their right mind who would do this. Willingly. Why? Because Jesus is humble. Because Jesus is humble. He lives for 30 years in relative obscurity. Did you know that the scriptures don't tell us very much at all between the time that he was born and when he starts to, to go into the desert public ministry? Most gospels just skip over it like it's not even part of everything. That's like 25 years. 24 years. Some of you think test, long time for testing is like two days. This was, this was Jesus 25 years. Do you know what they called him when he started performing miracles? Isn't this a carpenter? Isn't this guy a construction worker? That's what he was known as. There's a guy who has lived two miles from Jesus, and when he's performed miracles, he has no idea who he is. He had no reputation whatsoever by the time he starts performing his miracles. And so when it comes to humility, all we have to do is look to our Savior who could have died maybe a more unbearable death than on the cross. The cross is the way he died. Historical fact. 
The cross was reserved for the highest criminals possible in the culture. The cross was a form of punishment, not so much just just to torture someone, but to embarrass someone. That's why they crucified them naked. I mean, that in and of itself is punishment for most of us. Not just killed, but killed in the nude. It's embarrassing. It's why they crucified women, if they ever did, backwards. It was just, it was too much. That's our Savior. That's the humble child. Some of our, our, our hymns talk about this humble child. Secondly, Peter says this. I've got to wrap up. The pursuit of humility is active, not passive. That's why he says clothe yourselves. It has this idea of like fastening your shirt up. Okay? So it's, it's not this idea that like, like I'll, I'll try to be humble by not doing anything. That's actually not what Peter says. That this is actually an active thing that happens. And so this is what you will have to do if you want to pursue humility because you have to pursue it. You cannot just receive humility. You cannot just stop doing things and be humble. And if you claim humility, that's one evidence that we won't think you're humble, right? It's ironic, right? I'm the most humble person I know. Someone said that. I'm like, well, no, you're the least humble person I know because most don't even say it. Must be active. You must pursue it. Because the thing about pride is, is that it's so deceptive. Is that you likely won't see it in yourself as easily as someone else will see it in you. Ain't that the truth, right? How many feel you're gifted spiritually to see pride in other people's lives? Like I have the spiritual gift of telling other people they're wrong, right? We're great at it. I mean, I can spot pride miles away before they come into view. I'm awesome at spotting pride in other people's lives. I'm horrible at spotting pride in myself. It's like looking at yourself, though, isn't it? Spotting pride in yourself is like looking at yourself. Some of you say, well, I can see me, but how many of you can't see your face? Anyone see their own face? Anyone here see their own face? You can't see your own face. You need help to see your own face. You need help to see the back of your head. You need a mirror or something. You can't see certain parts of your back, right? This is why someone goes, i got something in my nose I can't see. i got something on my face I can't tell. Is there something on my back I can't see? Because there are parts of your body that you can't see yourself. You need someone else to see for you. Pride is just like that. You need to invite that and say, I can't see this in my own life. Can you help me find the pride in my own life? I can't see it. And if you don't pursue it, People will find ways to do it, but they won't do it in a very loving way. And so you have to pursue it. You have to pursue it. I love what C.J. Mahaney and Paul Tripp talk about this. He says, my self-perception is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. You ever see those carnival mirrors that are, you know, it's like that's the general look and color, but it's pretty warbled, isn't it? Like some make you look really big, some make you look really thin, but they're not accurate. Most of our perception of ourselves is like that. And he goes on to say, if I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me. I need you to hold up and say, look it. This is, this is what I'm seeing. 
Are you seeing that? This is impossible to do with someone who doesn't invite it. Impossible. Some of you have tried to correct someone who has not invited your correction and has not gone well. And so here's what Peter says. You pursue it. You go after people. This is why fight clubs actually started up within our church. Because we needed almost a more intense way of examining ourselves and being examined. Fight clubs are, are these groups of same sex that are groups of three to four that are, are kind of they're self-made. So we won't start a fight club for you. We don't even advertise it because we don't want to just start this idea that you need to start a fight club. No, if you need help and you want to invite correction, this is one way that you can do it. And so you gather three to four people who you trust. So if you don't trust anyone, you've got to find someone to trust. If you don't know anyone to trust, you've got to start making friends around here. It's just that simple. And you have to pursue them, and you have to ask them openly, and you have to listen to them when they tell you. You've got pride in your life, and I see it very clearly, even if you don't, and you have to listen carefully, even if you disagree with them. In fact, I'm sure you'll disagree with them. That's the very essence of pride. You think that you know yourself better than someone else knows you. And so this is what Peter says to all elders. To all people, pursue humility. Get rid of pride. Lastly, really quickly, he says you'll have to watch and resist. Be be sober-minded. Sober-minded means like not drunk. But there's a, there's a kind of way we act that's just not a careful way. What, what, what too much alcohol does is it doesn't change things, but it just kind of distorts them and takes away some of the reality. That's why when some of us are feeling bad about ourselves, we like to drink because it just numbs reality. And so Peter says, don't numb reality. Get a crystal clear view of it. Be sober-minded. This is reality. And, and, and then he says, Be watchful. Watch. This is coming. You not only have your sinful, you not only have your pride, you not only have all these things that will come and defeat you, you have a real-time enemy. Some of you don't believe Satan exists. And I would say, this is one of the only cultures where Satan doesn't seem to exist. But if you go to any other culture in the world, dark supernatural powers exist and are very real. And so Peter says, watch. Then he says, resist. He's seeking to devour you like a lion. For those who are first hearing this message, they have probably seen Christians torn apart by a real lion in a real coliseum. They've watched this lion come in and tear Christians limb from limb. It's gross. So this is what Peter says. Satan's like a lion that wants to tear you from limb to limb. And he will devour you if you don't watch. You can tell his signs and you can resist him. Because here's what he'll do. He won't, he, he won't be real obvious for the most part. I, I, I think some of us have been so tainted by this idea of Hollywood where, where Satan is this guy in, in, with red horns and a tail and a pitchfork. It's like that's so obvious. I remember watching even an SNL skit where they were depicting Satan. And Satan, in the SNL skit, said, Haha, the best thing I've done is 
pretend or, or have people believe that I don't exist and I'm not real. That's my best tactic. So this stuff, this obvious stuff, this doesn't work. What's subtle? And so this is what Satan will do. He will accuse you of things that are not true. How many of you women are constantly battling the accusations of the enemy about your body image? What you weigh, what you look like, what you eat, how you dress. How many times do you hear Satan, you're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You're not open enough. Those are not true. And Satan is seeking to devour you with them. Men, how many of us have been accused of you're lazy? You're not worth, you're a joke. You can't lead anybody. You're too sinful. This will never be forgiven. Here's how we resist with the truth. Is there any sin that cannot be forgiven by Jesus Christ? Answer? None. Is there any accusation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Answer? No. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that can separate us from Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not any sin you have. Not any relationship that's broken. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. He says, believe, repent and believe. And you have access to the Savior, humble Savior of the world. This is how we resist the enemy every single time. And some of us are honestly too proud to look the enemy in the eye and say, you can't accuse me of that. You think you have the answer. Well, no, Satan, I got this. I'm, I'm better than you. No, 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 you're not. You are not better than Satan. Jesus is. And Jesus has defeated our enemy already. He just says, I just want you to battle. Because in that battle, you will purify. And you will become more and more ready to worship me purely. And so as leaders, leaders have to really lead the charge on this. I don't think this is calling for leaders to be perfect at all. But it is calling for leaders to repent. It isn't calling leaders to not have any blemishes in their past, but it is calling leaders to stand up and be willing to be the first ones to repent. I say this often when it comes to marriage counseling. I say, men, leadership is not being better at leadership than your wife. It's just being willing to say, I'm sorry first. And let's reconcile. Let's reconcile this relationship. That's what leadership is. That's what it is in the church. It's not perfect men we're looking for. It's not men who are tall and can grow beards in a couple seconds. It's, it's not people who are smarter than everyone else. It's not people who are openly more charismatic than other people. It's people who are willing to repent first and say, you can follow me in my example of repentance. That's what a true leader is. It's what an elder is. That's why Peter says, I'm a fellow elder. I've repented. I have these problems, guys. I have these issues. And but by the grace of God, I am where I am. 
And so he says, be firm to the end. Jesus will do these things for us. He will confirm. He will establish. He will restore all things. Will he find faith in us? I can't deal with the last part because we are out of time, which is okay. Because all that's in those last verses is simply this. These are examples of people that that Peter's seen. These people are tested. You're getting tested. You're actually the church. This is real. Just so you know. Amen. As we come to the table, friends, what we're not looking for is perfect people to come and take this. We're not looking for people who have no pride in their life. We're looking for people who are pursuing humility. For all of us, this is our family meal, a reminder that we are not actually the most important that Jesus is. We believe that. And we don't hold back the table from anyone, but we ask that you personally, if you do not believe in this Savior, hold yourself back from this until you do. Because this is actually an act of faith. I am going to repent. I want to repent. I want to live a life of repentance. And so I will take of these elements, the broken bread, the cup, Jesus' broken body, Jesus' spilled blood. This is what they represent. This is Jesus' ultimate humility in the cross and saying, if you want to follow me, come and take and participate and pursue. So Tom, lead us, and then we'll partake together as a family.